Welcome to another episode of Fill in the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Harry Robleski, and we're going to talk about the Loch Ness Monster. What is your definition of the Loch Ness Monster? Personally, it's, um, in my opinion, it's an aquatic reptile. It's a plesiosaur by all intents and purposes. Other people have described it as a blob of flesh, which is really strange. And other people still have explained it as a marine mammal. Well... Yes, my answer seems dumb now, but I was going to say it's a tourist attraction or an aquatic dinosaur. I'm sorry. So, in Scottish folklore, the Loch Ness Monster, or Nessie, is a creature said to inhabit Loch Ness in the Scottish Highlands. It is often described as large in size, with a long neck and one or more humps protruding from the water. Popular interest and belief in that creature has varied since it was brought to worldwide attention in 1933. Evidence of its existence is anecdotal with a few disputed photographs and sonar readings. So the whole idea of Nessie. Let's get into the origins of where this even started in the first place. The word monster was reportedly applied for the first time to the creature on 2nd of May, 1933, by Alex Campbell, water bailiff for Loch Ness, and a part-time journalist in the Inverness Courier Report. On the 4th of August, 1933, the Courier published a report by Londinger George Spicer that several weeks earlier, while they were driving around the loch, he and his wife saw the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that had ever been seen in my life. Trundling across the road toward the lock with an animal in its mouth, letters began appearing in the courier, often anonymously claiming land or water sightings by the writer, their family or acquaintances, or remembered stories. The accounts reached the media, which described a monster fish, a sea serpent, or a dragon, and eventually settled on the name Loch Ness Monster. So on the 6th of December, 1933, the first purported photograph of the monster taken by Hugh Gray was published in the Daily Express. The Secretary of State for Scots Landon soon ordered police to prevent any attacks on it. In 1934, interest was further piqued by the surgeon's photograph that year R.T. Gold published an account of the author's investigation and record reports predating 1933. Other authors have claimed sightings of the monster dating to the 6th century A.D., which is, there's been more than a thousand recorded sightings of Nessie. Do you believe these are people just looking for attention, or do you believe that someone has actually seen something that might have been or looked like a... A lot of the accounts that I've heard, um, especially for other like creatures, they're mostly old people. And it's not that I wouldn't not believe an old person... But in some cases, they're so old that their account wouldn't really, you know, be attention-seeking. A lot of what stems for this being a giant, giant kind of um, anecdotal evidence-type thing, and really it just seems like a bunch of fake stories, like someone not really making any sense, was the whole idea of that, um, basically, the person that took the photograph didn't want his name being on the actual photograph. Mm-hmm. So his name was Mr. Wilson. He didn't actually want his name associated with the picture, which explains the nickname for the photograph, Surgeon's Photograph. So the earliest report of a monster in the vicinity of Loch Ness appears in the life of St. Columbia by Adelman and Abbott of Iona, written in the 7th century. So we talked about the, the it wasn't until the, the myth first really took off in 1933, 
following the opening of a new road that ran alongside the lock. A sighting by George Spicer was reported on July 22nd and then another day by Arthur Grant on a motorcycle of the following month. The first photographic evidence of Nessie was captured by Hugh Gray on November 12, 1933. Critics have claimed the blurry image shows Gray labor Labrador's retriever swimming towards its owner with a stick in its mouth. So part of the lock is 812 feet deep. It's been known as Nessie's Lair. These are just a couple facts. Um, Loch Ness lies in the Great Landfault Line between Fort Augustus and Inverness, which is the longest in Scotland. Do you know why people think that there might be an actual monster that still lives in there that we haven't found? Is because the lake does not freeze. Yeah. And if you know, the first sighting or the first um, like leftover pieces of the Chernobyl disaster is in Loch Ness. Oh, yeah. No, I heard about that. Isn't that nuts? It's crazy to think about. And the water doesn't freeze, and or it doesn't go below a certain temperature. Mm-hmm. And it also, it has something to different with the, the water chemicals and the polarity of it. There's like a certain type of like, they say, like Phineas and Ferb cracked the joke, it's a high amount of zinc in the water. Yeah. But it's it's some type of particle of that substance. It's like a chemical that just makes the water too, like has a certain type of metal that just won't freeze it. So that gives the aspect of Nessie might still be living down under. Yeah, on top of that, there's also numerous underwater caves. So even if they do scour the entire thing with scanners, they can't penetrate through the caves. It's the idea of that aliens are out there. They're out there, They're man. conspiracy, man. It's, it's, I mean, I, I think they're real, but... So let's talk about the history. St. Columbia, 565. Yeah, we're going back that early. It's going to be great. The earliest report of a monster in the vicinity of Loch Ness appears in The Life of St. Columbia's by Ottoman, written in the 6th century A.D. According to Ottoman, writing about a century after the events described, Irish monk St. Columbia was staying in the land of the pickets with his compassions when he encountered local residents buying a man by the river Ness. They explained that the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast, which mauled him and dragged him underwater. Although they tried to rescue him in a boat, he was dead. Columbia sent a follower, Luin Maku Min, to swim across the river. The beast approached him, but Columbia made the sign of the cross and said, Go no further, do not touch the man, go back at once. The creature stopped as if it had been pulled back with ropes and fled, and Columbia's men and the pickets gave thanks for what they perceived as a miracle. Believers in the monster point to the stories set in the river Ness rather than the lock itself as evidence for the creature's existence. In early as 6th century, skeptics questioned the narrative's reliability, noting that the water beast stories were extremely common in medieval hieroglyphs, and Adaman's tale probably recycles a common motive attached to a local landmark. According to skeptics, Adam's story may be independent of the modern Loch Ness monster legend and became attached to it by believers seeking to bolster their claims. Ronald Binns considers this the most serious of variations of alleged early sightings of the monster, but all others acclaimed sightings before 1933 are dubious and do not prove a monster tradition before that date. Christopher Kearney uses a specific historical and cultural analysis of Adamant to separate Adamant's story about St. Columbia from the modern myth of the Loch Ness Monster, but finds an earlier and culturally significant use of Celtic water beast folklore along the way. It's the whole idea of 
an object that's so monstrous or like a, like a, a, an average dinosaur mm-hmm. that people believe that it was like a sarsopod is that what it's called yeah um, uh, you mean the one in the Loch Ness yes okay they're calling that a plesiosaur yeah they call that it's, <clears throat> it's, somebody believes it's a dinosaur out there and that could be what it is but a lot of people chalk it up to a bump on like a log or yeah because all the photos are very hazy there's no like clear image in context um, it also relates to the whole idea of the kraken um, the Kraken and dealing with pirates, people say they saw like a giant squid, which is might be just a giant squid. But the whole idea is this mythical beast that lives in the depths of the water where mm-hmm. we act like we're the powerful almighty being, which we know if it was us just swimming in the water versus a shark, they're the powerful being. But when we have a giant ship, we're seen as gods above the sea. And it's the whole idea the Romans and Greeks created Poseidon of Greek mm-hmm. God was because they wanted it to seem like they weren't the ones that were in power and eventually overthrowing that whole idea with destroying the statues that they built for him. They had something to cast blame upon if a ship didn't come back to port. Well, it seems like it's also keeping society on a leash. Like, you don't want people to get an oversized ego of themselves being the captain or the the the, the, the owner of this lake you yeah. if you add a monster to it people are like oh you know it just adds a sense of curiosity and mystery but also a sense of you're not the only thing out there that can cause damage you better don't go sailing there's those sea monsters out there the wind's not right because nessie's in the water pretty much so in october 1871 um or 1872 d of balanin reportedly saw an object resembling a log or an upturned boat wriggling and churning up in the water. The object moved slowly at first, disappearing at a faster speed. Mackenzie sent his story to a letter to Rupert Gould in 1934, shortly after popular interest in the monster increased. These Irish nicknames, man. Or Scottish, right? Scottish. So George Spicer in 1933... Modern interest in the monster was sparked by a sighting on the 22nd of July, 1933, when George Spicer and his wife saw a most extraordinary form of animal cross the road in front of their car. So it wasn't even in the lake. Yeah, this was just walking across the street. So from everybody else's thing, this thing's only saying that it's described as four feet high and 25 feet long, Mm -hmm. wavy, narrow neck, slightly thicker than an elephant's trunk, and as long as 10 to 12 foot with the road. They saw no limbs. It lurched across the road towards the lock 20 yards away, leaving a trail of broken undergrowth in its wake. It has been claimed that the sightings of the monster increased after a road was built along the lock in early 1933, bringing workers and tourists to the formerly isolated area. However, Binns has described this as the myth of the lonely lock as it was far from isolated before then, due to the construction of the Candelinian Canal. In the 1930s, the existing road by the side of the lock was given a serious upgrade. Just possibly this work could have contributed to the legend, since there could have been tar barrels floating in the lock. This is the one that's interesting, actually. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that people described it as like a ball of flesh. Mm-hmm. This one is the one that's more often depicted as uh, what's known as a globster in the uh, in the water animal thing community. The thing that looks like a giant blob. Yeah. Yeah. So what a blobster is, for anybody that doesn't know that's listening in, um, a blobster is basically when a sea creature like a whale, a dolphin, or a shark in some cases dies at sea, um, their body will decompose at sea and wash ashore looking like a squid or like um, a trunked monster that looks like an elephant. 
in the case with one such creature that was seen um, called Trunco. They named it Trunco because it had like this white trunk like an elephant. <clears throat> they, it washed onto shore after people said it was seen fighting valiantly against a couple of killer whales out at sea. And it rolled into the beach and it's like, well, he's sleeping. I guess we shouldn't disturb him. No, it's dead. <laughs> Poke him with a stick. Anyway, yeah. Uh, the whole idea, first of all, if it's a site of a Chernobyl disaster, you mm-hmm. gotta think that might ir- radiate or mutate some type of monster. I mean, you Definitely. gotta think, how was Godzilla created? Definitely. A small little reptile that was near a nuclear facility in Japan, and the next thing you know, he's attacking the shores. That's my boy, Godzilla. So, Hugh Gray in 1933. Hugh Gray's photograph taken near Foyers on 12th November 1933 was the first photograph alleged to depict the monster. It was slightly blurred and has been noted that if one looks closely, the head of the dog can be seen. Gray had taken his Labrador for a walk that day and is suspected that the photograph depicts his dog fetching a stick from the lock. Others have suggested the photograph depicts an otter or a swan. The original negative was lost, however, in 1963, Maurice Bruton came into possession of two lantern slides. Contact positives from the original negative and, when projected on screen, revealed an otter rolling at the surface in charismatic fashion. Hmm. So, Arthur Grant in 1934, this is the guy that was on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So, on the 5th of January, 1934, a motorcyclist, Arthur Grant, claimed to have nearby hit the creature while approaching uh, the near the northeastern end of the lock at about 1 a.m. on a moonlit night. According to Grant, it had a small head attached to a lock. The creature saw him and crossed the road back to the lock. Grant, a veterinary student, described it as a cross between a seal and a... What's that called? Plesiosaur. Plesiosaur. He said he dismounted and followed it to the lock, but only saw ripples. Grant produced a sketch of the creature, which was examined by zoologist Maurice Burton, who stated it was consistent that the appearance and behavior of an otter Recording the long size of the creature reported by Grant, it had been suggested that this was a faulty observation due to poor light conditions. Paleontologist Darren Naish had suggested that Grant may have seen either an otter or a seal and exaggerated his sightings over time. Much like we say, I caught a fish this big. You know, mm-hmm. I caught a fish this big, and it seems like as the story kind of goes through the years, it tends the fish, the arms... Your hands get try, a little further yeah, apart. Your hands get a little further apart trying to show the fish. So let's talk about the surgeon's photograph in 1934. The surgeon's photograph is reportedly the first photo of the creature's head and neck, supposedly taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson, a London gynecologist. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was published in the Daily Mail on 21st of April, 1934. My question is, what is a gynecologist (laughs) doing taking photos of a giant dinosaur? Hey, man, come on. Even a dentist got to take a golf day. Okay. That's not a dentist. That's I, a little bit different. Well, I mean, once you start diving around another... No, I'm not going to go into that. No, we're not going into that. We're not diving into that Ooh. like the Lake of Loch Ness. Anyway. Let's stay in the lake. Wilson's refusal to have his name associated with it led to it being known as the surgeon's photograph. According to Wilson, he was looking at the lock where he saw the monster, grabbed his camera, and snapped four photos. Only two exposures came out clearly. The first reportedly shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a diving position. The first photo became well-known, and the second attracted little publicity because of its blurriness. Although for a number of years the photo was considered evidence of the monster, skeptics dismissed it as driftwood. 
an elephant, an otter, or a bird. The photo scale is controversial. It is often shown cropped, making the creature seem large and the ripples like waves. While the uncropped shot shows the other end of the lock and the monster in the center. The ripples in the photo were found to fit the size and pattern of small ripples, unlike large wave photograph up close. The analysis of the original image fostered further doubt. In 1993, the makers of the Discovery Communications documentary Loch Ness discovered, analyzed the uncropped image, and found a white object to be visible in every version of the photo. This implying that it was on the negative. It was believed to be the cause of the ripples as if the object was being messed with. Although the possibility of a blemish or on the negative could not be ruled out, an analysis of the full photograph indicated that the object was small, about 60 to 90 centimeters, 2 to 3 feet long. Since 1994, most agree that the photo was an elaborate hoax that had been accused of being a fake in a 7 December 1975 Sunday Telegraph article which fell into obscurity. Now, have you seen the surgeon's photograph? Yes, I have. Oh, God. It's literally like, it looks like a log. It yeah. lit- It looks like... It, it looks lo- like a log with a stick that's coming out of it, like, a, you know, like a twig or something. Yeah. It's, it's not... It's... I mean, it's blurry, so I guess it, it provides steam for this. What they did, uh, from what I understand, is they put, like, a a Diplodocus head on top of, like, I think it was, like, a, a stick or something like that, and they had it submerged just right in the we water. We are getting to that. Oh, well, my bad. Oh, there's a whole other paragraph. <laughs> Dude, there's... 12 other pages I got here. Oh, I thought you had the... Okay, no, you're good. Published, I'm sorry. I told you I did research. <laughs> Published in the 1909 book, Nessie, the Surgeon's Photograph Exposed, which contains a, f- a facsimile of the 1975 Sunday Telegraph's article. The creature was reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling, the son-in-law of Marmaduke Weatherill. Weatherill has been publicly ridiculed by his employer, the Daily Mail, after he found out Nessie's footprints, which turned out to be a hoax. To get revenge on the mail, Weatherlow perpetuated his hoax with co-conspirator Sperling, a sculpture specialist, and Ian Weatherling, his son, who bought the material for the fake, and Maurice Chambers, an insurance agent. The toy submarine was bought from F.W. Woolworths, and its head and neck were made from wood putty. After testing it in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Weatherall took the photos near the Alscott Tea House. When they heard a water bailiff approaching, Duke Weatherill sank the model with his foot and it presumably still somewhere in the Loch Ness. Chambers gave the photographic plates to Wilson, a friend of his who enjoyed a good practical joke. Wilson brought the plates to Olgston, an Inverness chemist, and gave them to George Morrison for development. He sold the first photo to the Daily Mail, who then announced that the monster had been photographed. Little is known of the second photo. It is often ignored by researchers who believe its quality was too poor and its differences from the first photo too great to warrant analysis. It shows a head similar to the first photo with a more tubulative or tubulative wave pattern and possibly taken at a different time and location in the lock. Some believers it may be an earlier cruder attempt at a hoax, and others, including Roy Mackle and Maurice Burton, considered it a picture of a diving bird or otter with Wilson mistook for the monster. According to Morrison, when the plates were developed, Wilson was uninterested in the second photo. He allowed Morrison to keep the negative, and the second photo was rediscovered years later. When asked about the second photo by the Ness Information Service newsletter, Sperling was vague. 
thought it might have been a piece of wood they were trying out as a monster, but was not sure. Pretty much. So that was basically what you were getting to before I even... Yeah, my bad. I didn't realize. I had the information, sir. <sighs> okay. Taylor Film, 1938. On the 29th of May, 1938, South African tours G.E. Taylor filmed something in the lock of three minutes on 16mm color film. The film was obtained by the popular science writer Maurice Burton, who did not show it to other researchers. A single frame was published in the 1961 book, The Elusive Monster. His analysis concluded it was a floating object, not an animal. So all these hoax that are being proven false, all these practical jokes that are being played, you know, from the very first photograph to films that are coming out uh, proving that it's not real... It's, we got William Frazier of 1938. On the 15th of August, 1938, William Frazier, chief constable of Inverness Shire, wrote a letter to that, that the monster existed beyond doubt and expressed concern about a hunting party which had arrived with a custom-made harpoon gun, determined to catch the very monster, dead or alive. He believed his power to protect the monster from the hunters was very doubtful. The letter was released by the National Archives of Scotland on the 27th, April, 2010. Sonar readings in 1954. In December 1954, sonar readings were taken by the fisherman boat Rival III. Its crew noted a large object kneeling pace with the vessel at a deep or a depth of 146 meters, which is exactly 479 feet for the American people. It was detected for 800 meters, 2,600 feet, before contact was lost and regained. Previous sonar taps were inconclusive or negative. Now, the idea behind that, do you believe that was just a blip on the radar, like a lot of people say? Like, when they're tracking Jaws, they're like, what's that on the radar? It's too big to be a shock. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, it could be any number of things. Uh, they've said that it could be a school of fish, even, because if a school is big enough, it's going to make a huge mark on your radar. Um, again, it's inconclusive whether or not you... If you believe in it, then that's pretty good proof, especially for 1954... But um, if you don't believe in it, you can call it what it is. It could be a school of fish. It could be otters. There are seals in the lock as well. It could be any number of things. It seems like a lot of the um, reports that get kind of blown out of the water in their hoax ways um, seems that it all chalked up to another animal that's been, like, affected or been, like, kind of soaked up or dead for so long. Because when a corpse dies in a water, it soaks it up like a sponge. And they believe those are what's washed on shore and sometimes gets yeah. mistaken. What do you know about Peter McNabb? I don't Not the football the player. 1955, Peter McNabb at Rubark Castle on July 29th, 1955, took a photograph that depicted two black long humps in the water. The photograph was not made public until it appeared in the Constant White's 1957 book, so exactly two years later. On the 23rd of October, 1958, it was published in the Weekly Scotsman, Arthur Ronald Binns wrote that the phenomenon which McNabb photographed could easily be a wave effect resulting from three, three trawlers traveling closely together up the lock. Other researchers considered the photograph a hoax. Roy Mackle requested to use the photograph in the 1976 book. He received the original negative from McNabb, but discovered it deferred from the photograph that appeared in White's book. The tree at the bottom left in White's was missing from the negative. It is suspected that the photograph was doctored by re-photographing a print. That doesn't surprise me with that one. So, what about the Loch Ness Puppet, or Muppet? Yeah, that one sounds interesting to me. 
Well, on the 21st of May, 1977, Anthony Doc Shields, camping next to the Irwake Castle, took some of the clearest pictures of the monster until this day. Shields, a magician and a psychic, claimed to have summoned the animal out of the water. He later described it as an elephant squid, claiming the long neck shown in the photograph is actually the squid's trunk, and that is a white spot at the base of its neck and its eye. Due to the lack of ripples, it has been declared a hoax by a number of people and received its name because of its stage look. I remember that one now. So you know Margaret Thatcher considered making the Loch Ness Monster a protected species in the 1980s? I did hear about that. There's been a lot of weird stuff with the Loch Ness Monster. She also, it's called the government of Thatcher, considered searching for dolphins imported from America. So they were going to search for freaking the Loch Ness Monster with mm-hmm. dolphins imported from America. They were had a whole search. There's been search parties for the Loch Ness. There's a bounty out for its head. Are you kidding me? I mean, I, for them, it's a lot like the Roswell, New Mexico thing. Yeah. It's now just a tourist attraction. It's literally like Roswell, New Mexico has a McDonald's that is in the shape of a UFO. Everything they have is alien style. You can't walk down the street in Roswell without seeing alien stuff. It's just that whole thing. There's toys everywhere. It's oh, yeah. their main thing. It's like, buy a t-shirt. I survived Roswell and didn't get abducted. That type of thing. It's like going to Florida and everything you buy is Mickey Mouse. Yeah, it's like Loch Ness Monster. Everything you go down there to Loch Ness or in that area is going to be sold to that whole idea of Loch mm-hmm. Ness Monster. And it's it's not a very it's a very kind of dreary place in the first off. It's like rainy because I mean it's it's Scotland. It's the lock, so it's, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the weather's not too happy, but those people look to that as their sense of tourist attraction. It's going to bring people here, which yeah. is why they fund it constantly. And there's constant people investing money into it and all these programs just to keep it running as more of a tourist attraction rather than an actual search for a creature of another, um, yeah, maybe time period. Maybe. So we had sonar images um, on the 24th of August, 2011, Loch Ness boat. Captain Marcus Atkinson photographed a sonar image of a 1.5 meter wide, 4.9 feet unidentified object were seen to follow his boat for two minutes at a depth of 23 meters or 75 feet and ruled out the possibility of a small fish or seal. In April 2012, a scientist from the National Oceanographic Center said that the image is a bloom of algae or zooplankton, much like you were saying, a group of fish or a group of something grouped together. So then there's the George Edwards photograph of 2011, the Dave Elder video of 2013. I don't want to go into full details on this. But uh, the, one of the most common things is uh, people Googling. Um, it's called Google Street View. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is 2015. Uh, Google commemorated the 80, 81st anniversary of the surgeon's photograph with the Google Doodle. And, and a new feature to the Google Street View, which users can explore the lock above and below the water. Google reportedly spent a week at Loch Ness collecting imagery with a Street View tracker camera, attaching it to a boat to photograph above the surface and collaborating with members of the Caitlin Sea View survey to photograph underwater. So it searches. Mm-hmm. 20 men were paid $2 a day to be a monster watcher, but nothing was found. That doesn't surprise me. 20 people getting paid $2 just to search for Loch Ness. That sounds like an easy job. For $2, yeah. An hour? Yeah. I do that for $2 an hour, just sitting on a boat, drinking beer. Hell yeah. I'm going to take a nap. You you take a second shift. Yeah. I'll let you know if I catch anything that everyone starts laughing. So, Edward Mountain Expedition of 1934. The Loch Ness... Phenomena Investigation Bureau of 1962 to 1972. This is one I really want to highlight. 
the Loch Ness Phenomena in Investigation Bureau was a UK-based society formed in 1962 by Norman Collins RSR Fitter, politician David James, Peter Scott, and Constance White to study Loch Ness to identify the creature known as the Loch Ness Monster or determine the cause of reports of it. The society's name was later shortened to the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau and it disbanded in 1972. The LNIB had an annual subscription charge, which covered administration. Its main activity was encouraging groups of self-funded volunteers to watch the lock from vantage points with film cameras and telescopic lenses. From 1965 to 1972, it had a caravan camp and viewing platform and sent observers to other locations up and down the lock. According to the Bureau's 1969 annual report, it had 1,030 members, of whom 588 were from the United, or United Kingdom. Hmm. That's crazy to think that we actually had a program, an investigation bureau, like the CIA, yeah. for fi- trying to find this thing that's obviously been proven a hoax. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. For everything that is paranormal out there, there's somebody looking for it, and there's a group for it. Well... In 1987, we had something called Operation Deep Scan. You know what that was? Yeah, I heard about that one. What, what do you know about it? Uh, it's when they used the deep scanning sonar and radar systems to try to find any kind of silhouette that would match the creature. Well, Operation Deep Scan was conducted in 1987. 24 boats equipped with echo sounder equipment were deployed across the width of the lock and simultaneously sent acoustic waves. According to BBC News, the scientists had made sonar contact with an unidentified object of unusual size and strength. The researchers returned, rescanning the area. Analysis of the echo sounder images seemed to indicate debris at the bottom of the lock. Although there was motion in three of the pictures, Adrian Shrine speculated based on its size that they might be seals which had entered the lock. Sonar expert Daryl Lorse, founder of Lorse Electronics donated a number of echo sounder units and used in the operation. After examining a sonar return indicating a large moving object at a depth of 180 meters, 590 feet, near Urukuk Bay, Lawrence said there's something here that we don't understand, and there's something here that's larger than a fish. We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> Maybe some species that hasn't been detected before. I don't know. So searching for the Loch Ness Monster in 2003, in 2003, the BBC sponsored a search for the lock using 600 sonar beams and satellite tracking. The search had sufficient resolution to identity a small buoy. No animal or substantial size was found, and despite their high hopes, the scientists involved admitted that his proved the Loch Ness Monster was a myth. Searching for the Loch Ness Monster aired on BBC One. I think I actually watched that on TV when it aired. So we had a DNA survey in 2018. Mm-hmm. Seems like an international team consisting of researchers from the University of Odegao, Copenhagen, Hull, and the Highlands and Islands did a DNA survey of the lake in June 2018, looking for unusual species. The results are expected in 2019. So That's hopefully this year. year we're going to get results on the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Is it a fake? Probably. God only knows. Explanations. Like I was saying before, a number of explanations had been suggested to account for sightings of the creature. According to Robert Binns, a former member of the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau, there's probably no single explanation of the monster. Binns wrote two skeptical books, the 1983 Loch Ness Mystery Solved and his 2017 book, The Loch Ness Mystery Reloaded. 
In these, he contends that the aspect of human psychology is the ability of the eye to see what it wants and expects to see. They may be categorized as misidentifications of known animals, misidentifications of inanimate objects or effects, reinterpretations of Scottish folklore, hoaxes, and exotic species of large animals. A reviewer wrote that Binns had evolved into the author of the definitive skeptical book on the subject. Binns does not call the sightings a hoax, but a myth in the true sense of the term, and states that the monster is a sociological phenomenon. After 1983, the search or possibility that there just might be a continuous enthrall, a small number of whom eyewitness evidence outweighs all other considerations. So it's the idea, like I was telling you before, of wanting something to be bigger than us out there. Yeah. The whole idea that religion is a thing. Like exactly. Wanting a higher power or an, an all-nificent being. Maybe some people believe in the Loch Ness Monster because they want to feel like they're not alone and there's this mystical creature that's out there that's from a story. Yeah. Grant's wishes or something. God only knows. So a lot of them are misidentification of known animals. Let's talk about bird wakes. You know what bird wakes are? Bird wakes, when they move through the water and they make waves. Well, yep, wakes have been reported when the lock is calm with no boats nearby. Bartender David Murno reported a wake he believed was a creature zigzagging, diving, and reappearing. There were reportedly 26 other witnesses from a nearby car park. Although some sightings describe a V-shaped wake similar to a boat's, Others report something not confirming to the shape of a boat. Eels. A large eel was an early suggestion. Eels are found in Loch Ness and unusually large. One would explain many sightings. Dinsdale dismissed the hypothesis because eels undulate side to side like snakes. Sightings in 1856 of a sea serpent or kelpie in a freshwater lake near La Bruce Odor. Hebrids, cheese, these Scottish names, right. were explained as those of an oversized eel, also believed common in the Highland Lakes. An elephant. Mm-hmm. In 1979 article, California biologist Dennis Power and geographer Donald Johnson claimed that the surgeon's photograph was the top of the head of an extended trunk and flared nostrils of a swimming elephant, photographed elsewhere and claimed to be from the Loch Ness. In 2006, paleontologist and artist Neil Clark suggested that traveling circuses might have allowed elephants to bathe in the lock. The trunk could be the perceived head and neck with the head and back of the perceived humps. In support of this, Clark provided a painting. The Greenland Shark Zoologist, angler, and television presenter Jeremy Wade investigated the creature in 2013 as part of the series River Monsters and concluded that it is on Greenland Shark. The Greenland shark, which can reach up to 20 feet in length, inhabits of North Atlantic Ocean around Canada, Greenland, and Iceland, Norway, and possibly Scotland. It is dark in color and small dorsal fin. According to biologist Bruce Wright, the Greenland shark could survive in fresh water, possibly using rivers and lakes to find food. And Loch Ness has an abundance of salmon and other fish. Then there's the Wells catfish. What about the resident animals? It is difficult to judge the size of an object in water through a telescope or binoculars with no external reference. Loch Ness has resonant others, and photos of them are deer swimming in the loch, which were cited by author Ronald Binna, and may have been misinterpreted. According to Binns, birds may have been mistaken for a head and neck sighting. So misidentification of objects or effects, give me some that you might know of. Off the top of my head, I would say um, a canoe. 
an abandoned canoe in the middle of the water might be uh, something that would be misconstrued or something like that. Well, mostly trees, branches, and stuff falling yeah. down. In 1933, the Daily Mirror published a photo, actually a picture with the caption, This queerly shaped tree trunk washed ashore at Fours on Lake, Na- or Lake Ness um, may it is thought to be responsible for the reported appearance of a monster. In a 1982 series of the articles for new scientist Maurice Burton per- per- proposed that sightings of Nessie could similar creatures be fermenting Scott's pine logs rising to the surface of the lock. A decomposing log could not initially release gases caused by decay because of its high resin level. Gas pressure would eventually rupture a resin seal at one end of the log, propelling it through the water sometimes to the surface. According to Burton, the shape of tree logs with their branch stumps closely resembles descriptions of the monster. So the sulfur from the tree falling into the lake, mm-hmm. causing an explosion from the gas. That's a whole connected string theory there. And then that's what it is. You're seeing blown bits of tree bark. Turns it into a rocket as a... Hey, it has, it has bolster to it, man. I'm not going to lie. What about sitches and wakes? Loch Ness, because of its long, straight shape, is subject to unusual ripples affecting its surface. A, a, a psychics, a large oscillation of a lake caused by water reverting to its natural level after being blown to one end of the lake, resulting in a standing wave. The Loch Ness oscillation period is 31.5 minutes. So some optical effects. Wind conditions can give a choppy mock appearance to the water with calm patches appearing dark from the shore, reflecting the mountains. In 1979, W. H. Ley showed that as or atmospheric reaction could distort the shape and size of objects and animals, and later published a photograph of the mirage of a rock on Lake Winnipeg, which resembles a head and a neck. Mm-hmm. Seismic gas, Italian geologist Luigi Bacardi had also proposed geological explanations for ancient legends and myth. Bacardi noted that in the earliest recorded sighting of a creature, the life of St. Columba, the creature's emergence was accompanied cum ingefeti fermutu. It means with loud roaring. The Loch Ness is along the Great Glen Fault, and this could be a description of an earthquake. Many reports consist only of a large disturbance on the surface of the water. This could be a release of gas through the fault, although it may be mistaken for something swimming below the surface. So folklore, yay. It's a good part. In 1980, Swedish naturalist and author Benget, I'm not even going to say that, Shorgen, wrote that present beliefs in his take on monsters such as the Loch Ness monsters are associated with Kelpie legends. According to Sorgen, Accounts of Loch Ness Monster have been changed over time, originally describing a horse-like creature that were intended to keep children away from the loch. Sorgen wrote that the Kelpie legends have developed into descriptions reflecting a modern awareness of plesiosaurs. The Kelpie was a water horse and Loch Ness was mentioned in an 1879 Scottish newspaper and inspired the Dinsdale Project Water Horse. A study of 1933 Highland folklore references to Kelpiers, water horses, and water bulls indicated that Ness was the loch most frequently sighted. Hmm. So some hoaxes. A number of hoaxes have been made, some of which were successful. Other hoaxes were revealed rather quickly by the perpetrators or exposed after diligent research. A few examples follow. 
In August 1933, Italian journalist Francesco Gasparni submitted what he said was the first news article on the Loch Ness Monster. In 1959, he reported a sighting of a strange fish and fabricated eyewitness accounts. I had the inspiration to get a hold of the item about the strange fish. The idea of the monster had never dawned on me, but then inspiration began to take hold. I noted that the strange fish would not yield the long article and decided to promote the imaginary being to the rank of monster without further ado. That thing was actually taxidermy, by the way. It's crazy. Taxidermy is a very good art for aesthetic view and um, performing. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he actually had a little... A lot of costumes are made. He actually had like a little... Um, taxidermied Loch Ness monster made out of fish, which was ridiculous. And that's what he was uh, presenting to the uh, news companies. Is that it? I have a picture of it. In the 1930s, oh, big yeah. game hunter Marmaduke Weatherill went to Loch Ness to look for the monster. Weatherill claimed to have found footprints, but then casts of footprints were sent to scientists for ana- or analysis. They turned out to be from a hippopotamus. A prankster had used a hippopotamus, a hippopotamus foot umbrella stand. Mm-hmm. In 1972, a team of zoologists from Yorkshire's Flanning Park Zoo searching for the monster discovered a large body floating in the water. The corpse, 4.9 to 5, 4 meters, um, 16 to 18 feet long and weighing as much as 1.5 tons, was described by the Press Association as having a bear's head and a brown scaly body with claw-like fins. The creature was placed into a van to be carried away for testing, but police seized the cadaver under an act of parliament prohibiting the removal of unidentified creatures from Loch Ness. It was later revealed that the Flamingo Park education officer, Prince John Shields, shaved the whiskers and otherwise disfigured a bull elephant seal, which had died the week before. And supposedly from the creature, when he tripped and fell into the lock, after examination, it was clear that the fossil had been planted. Mm-hmm. Can you believe how sick these people are? It's crazy. Affecting a dead body just to get the hoax. The worst thing was, that was an April Fool's prank. I'm not wow, even that's, kidding. It's terrible. It is. In 2004, a five-TV <clears throat> documentary team used Cinemax special effects experts try to convince people that there was something in the lock. They constructed an animatronic model of a plesiosaur, calling it Lucy. Despite setbacks, including Lucy falling to the bottom of the lock, about 600 sightings were reported where she was placed. In 2005, two students claimed to have found a large tooth embedded in the body of a deer on the lock shore. They publicized the find, setting up a website, but experts' analysis soon revealed that the tooth was the antler of a muttonjack. The tooth was publicity stunt to promote a horror novel by Stephen Alton. The lock. So this whole idea of a monster, out of all this information, it's proven a hoax, proven fake, it's not real. Do you still believe that there might be something out there? There's always a possibility. Um, For every story that you hear, there's a million different explanations that a rational human being can give you. But hearing the accounts and hearing, um, hearing the eyewitness what they have to say... It, it kind of changes your perspective a little bit. I know a lot of people believe that seeing is believing with a lot of these things. But at the end of the day, that little world of whimsy that we go to when we hear these stories and these accounts, that's what we really need. I think it's the idea of us, like I said, wanting there to be something much greater out there. As mm-hmm. society and people have this 
attraction to create things. And when we decide to create things, we, we do it and we give it a fantasy aspect for the same reason of pleasure it gives us. Yeah. And that's because we don't we, we would love to have superpowers. We'd love to have oh, yeah. this. But the, to create a mystical creature or folklore, it's why myths and folks lore, all that all those stories you get told as a kid, Little Red Riding Hood and all that, like that's all these are all fantasies and tales that are made up to just inspire creativity and inspire passion in a way so i believe that the loch ness monster if people want to believe that it's real and go spend all this money into going into it um if you find it i'll be more than happy but you know just like i said you never get to really truly understand anybody's view on anything unless you've experienced it or seen it yourself. Exactly. So anybody else that thinks they should look up the stuff about the Loch Ness Monster, please go outside of this podcast and dive into the realm yourself. Because I learned a little bit about history just with how far a place like Loch Ness or that area can just turn into either a tourist attraction or an aquatic dinosaur site. And if you're listening to this, there might actually be a local Loch Ness monster near you. We have one right out here. Did you know about that? Oh. The Chesapeake Bay monster. Get out of here with that. Chessie, I'm not kidding, dude. No. Look it up. Chessie's not real. It's a tourist attraction like Nessie. Exactly. Are you saying it's in the bay? I'm saying it's in Chesapeake Bay. It's not in the freaking bay. I've walked all over that bay. I was a jet ski guide. I'm aware. The bay is waist deep. I know. All right. Tourists well, don't know. Like I said, educate you guys selves on this topic of the Loch Ness Monster. It's definitely something you can get deep down in the rabbit hole where you start feeling like you should put on an aluminum hat. But um, thanks for listening to this episode of Fill in the Blank and stay tuned for our next episode.